0: Good morning. The reading of God's word this morning comes from 2 Samuel 11:26, Hebrews 12:5. You can find that in the Pew Bible at page 263 if you'd like to follow along or the following Jesus Bible page 327. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah her husband was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord, and the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one ewe lamb, which he had bought." And he brought it up and grew it up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink of his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the Lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and you have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife." Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun for you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin and you shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who was born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house, and the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him.
1: If you have little ones, first grade and under, who'd like to go over for children's worship, uh, Miss Brittany and Miss Savannah, w- let's line up at the door, and Miss Brittany and Miss Savannah will lead us over to our other building. If you're visiting here with us and not been to children's worship before, we invite uh, one parent uh, to go over there to get them signed up with our volunteers. Well, how does Second Samuel chapter eleven end? Well, it appears that King David of Israel has not only gotten away with adultery and murder, uh, but it seems like he's going to come off looking like the good guy. So rather than being exposed for his sin, he will probably be praised by his people. Because what is he doing? He's, he's taking in this poor soldier's widow as his own. And, and, and more than that, God is now blessing them with a child. You know what, that David, he's not just a, a, a good king. He's just a good guy. You can hear the accolades spreading across Jerusalem as David does this selfless thing, as this phoenix rises from the ashes of Uriah's dust. Well, that may be what people are saying about David. But chapter 11 ends with this statement. But the thing that David had done displeased Yahweh. You see, this story is not just about David's faithlessness. It's not just about how you and I fail. It's also about God's faithfulness. God is faithful to uphold justice for the oppressed and discarded like Uriah. God is faithful to keep his promises like the promises he had made many years before about how he would respond when his kings failed to be faithful. But there's a particular faithfulness that I want to draw your attention to this morning, and it's this. God is faithful to discipline his children. You see, God's a good dad. He's the best dad, in fact. And he isn't okay with his children Continuing in faithlessness. He knows that sin is bad for us and He knows what we were made for. He loves His children. So, what does He do? He is faithful to discipline His children. So, last week we saw how God changes our hearts so that we might desire the right things, so that we might learn to love God and to love the things of God. That's an internal work that God does in his kids. But even after making that internal change, we still have our flesh. We still sin. We're still tempted. So David, even though he knew God quite closely, was still prone to sin. And if you haven't realized it yet this week, we are too. But regeneration, that internal work of giving us a new heart, that's not all that God does to direct and redirect his children. No, he's faithful to discipline us too. But why? Why does he discipline us? Well, God disciplines us so that we recognize our sin, so that we feel its shame and guilt, and therefore find it less satisfying. That's why he disciplines us. Now, David David knew he'd sinned. (laughs) I don't think this was any mystery to him, that it had to be revealed to him. Oh, you shouldn't have committed adultery. You shouldn't have had this guy killed. But that's not the case with all of God's children all the time, right? Sometimes we sin in ignorance. We don't recognize that we've sinned. Therefore, God disciplines us. Likewise, the shame of our sin and the guilt of our sin is not always apparent to us. You know, we may be immature spiritually or... We may have hardened us to cause us to find sin less satisfying. I tell my kids this regularly, not in these words necessarily, but the purpose of discipline is to remind you that sin hurts us. Sin hurts us. It hurts the people around us. It hurts the world around us. If God didn't love us, he just let us sin. Go right ahead. Hurt yourself and hurt everybody and everything around you. He he wouldn't make us aware of our sin if he didn't care for us, but that's not what he does. He's faithful to discipline his children so we're awakened to the reality of our sin, that it's not good for us, that it hurts us, that it destroys everything. So let's see how God did this work of discipline in David's life. So look again, chapter 12, of 2 Samuel, verses 1 through 6. Now, as I'm reading, you'll hear me saying Yahweh. That's because when you see LORD in all caps in the Old Testament— Uh, In the the Hebrew uh, language, it's actually the name of God, Yahweh, that's there. So verses 1 through 6, And Yahweh sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb which he had bought. And he brought it up and he It grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man. And he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as Yahweh lives... The man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. So God sent his prophet Nathan to David. And Nathan, who's clearly a better preacher than me, just, you know, lured David right in with this parable, right? David is incensed over this rich man who stole and slaughtered the poor man's precious lamb. And David is so angry that he issues a royal verdict. He says, as Yahweh lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. For the record, this goes way beyond what the law of God requires for a lamb being killed, okay? What... Radical hypocrisy. David is enraged over the death of a lamb while he killed a faithful, godly soldier and took his wife as his own. Not out of the goodness of his heart, he took her as his own to save face. (laughs) This is a radical hypocrisy. So David demands that this lamb murderer's life Must be taken. And on top of that, he should pay fourfold compensation. Meanwhile, David lies in Bathsheba's adulterous bosom. This is grade A dirtbaggery on David's part. And then Nathan closes the deal in verse 7. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. And I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of Yahweh to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house. Because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. So through Nathan, God is disciplining David. Well, how? How is this discipline? Well, first, he confronts David's sin with the truth. You're the man. You've sinned grievously. And here's how. He just spells it out for him. He confronts David's sin with a damning truth. And in so doing, David sees his sin. The gig is up. He is exposed. He feels shame, rightful shame for what he's done. But it's not all, only shame that he feels, it's also guilt. And let's think about what these two things are. So shame is when we feel the disgrace and dishonor of our sin. Guilt is, is a recognition of our failure to live according to God's standard. Both of these things get felt in godly discipline. They're similar feelings. But shame, shame's more like embarrassment, okay? Guilt is more like fear. Let me, let me give you an example. i by God's grace, I've not been pulled over for speeding in a very long time. Uh, I had a little trouble with the Tennessee Department of Transportation a couple decades ago for having a, a lead foot, and so I just lightened it up a bit. But let's say I get pulled over this afternoon for speeding. If I get pulled over, first of all, I'm going to feel really stupid. How ignorant of me. The law is right there. This was just dumb. This is a waste of my time, a waste of my funds. This is terrible. It's also, so that's some shame in there. But it's also shameful because by speeding, I could be endangering others. I'm speeding around a neighborhood. That is a shameful thing to do. So those feelings of personally screwing up, that's shame. But then when I get that ticket and I read the penalty that I'm going to pay, that cost, that dreadful feeling is guilt. Well, David no doubt feels both. He feels like a fool, a hypocrite, a coward, just a terrible person. That's shame for the things he's done. But he knows not only what God's law says should now happen to him, he also knows the royal verdict that he just <laughs> introduced for himself. That's, that's guilt. So Nathan confronts him and he's caught He's exposed. And then Nathan takes the law of God, the expectations on David, not only as a follower of Yahweh, but as the king of God's people. He shows him the penalty, the guilt of his sin. Let's look at that in verses 10 through 12. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house. The whole rest of this book is that, be, that promise being fulfilled of the sword never departing from David's house. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you've despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun." So this is the penalty. This is the cost of David's sin. Ironically, David had already issued a worse verdict against himself. But as David's story unravels from here onward, we're going to see four of his sons die. David's royal verdict was that fourfold compensation would need to occur for this one lamb being taken, and then four of David's sons die. The sword will never leave his house. His legacy... Will not be a temple, his legacy will be blood, and his wives will be taken from him. As he took another man's wife, so his wives will be taken. So Nathan not only exposes David's shame, he also exposes his guilt. But to what ends? What good does this do? Well, God's ultimate purpose in discipline is to bring his children back to them by showing them the danger of their sin. Now, you might think David hears this and uh, is not so inclined to come back to God. If this is the cost, is this what you're going to do to me? Well, by God's providence, this, this week I happened to read Leviticus 26. It's a good read. You should go check it out. Leviticus 26 talks about how God disciplines his people. And he begins with a light discipline. And if they don't respond, he does a slightly less light discipline. You, if you've got kids, you know what this is like. And it increases and increases and increases. And so David, by this point, there have been... All these moments along the way where he should have recognized what he has done and repent, but he is not. This discipline makes David feel his shame and see his, his guilt so that he would flee back to God from his sin. Look at verses 13 and 14, how David responds. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against Yahweh. And Nathan said to David, Yahweh also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, by this deed, you have utterly scorned Yahweh. The child who is born to you shall die. Sin is always costly. And maybe sometimes it seems like we're going to get away with it. That's why God steps in and applies the pain of discipline to us. We feel the pain of our sin anew and we remember its danger. Now, we're going to talk more in a later sermon about the death of David's son. I know that part of the story is really tough, so we're going to deal with it later. But the main point I want to get across this morning is that through discipline, God confronts David's sin and rightfully made its pain seem greater than its pleasure. Chris and I were talking about this this week, and I thought he described it well. He said, you know, God kind of puts his finger down on sin so that it can't wreck us as much as if it was set free. And in circumstances like these, it's like God just kind of slightly lets his finger up a little bit so that sin begins to wreak havoc on our lives and on our world. And we see what sin could really do if God were to fully release his hand. What David is seeing is the chaos of his own sin unfurling in his home and uh, in his kingdom. It's a disaster. So through discipline, God's trying to change our thinking. Through discipline, God is trying to change our desire. Remember the whole thinking, desiring, attraction thing we were talking about a few weeks ago? Through discipline, God is trying to make sinful things seem less attractive to us. And what God did for for David, he still does in the lives of Christians today. So flip over to Hebrews chapter 12. It was in your worship guide. Listen to what the author of Hebrews says in verses 5 through 11 of Hebrews 12. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been what? Trained by it. So David's experience of discipline was not an anomaly. No, this is what God does with every one of his children. So out of loving faithfulness, God disciplines every one of his children when they are living faithlessly. So we should expect God to discipline us as he disciplined David. But how? How does God discipline us today? Well, first, God disciplines us through Christian uh, family and friends confronting us. So Nathan went to David, confronted his sin. God will send people in our lives to do the same thing. It's kind of funny. If you think about Nathan the prophet, if he were to confront a 21st century Christian in the way that he confronted David, I wouldn't be shocked to hear them respond, how dare you judge me, right? But what Nathan does isn't judgment. It's love. When a parent disciplines their child, what are they doing? They're not judging them. They're trying to warn them away from sin back to faithfulness with God. Those parents are inviting their children back to enjoy the love of God and the love of their parents. It's not judgment. It's not retribution. We don't punish our kids to make them hurt for the things they did. No, it's a call away from sin to restoration and relationship. So also in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus tells us to do the same thing with fellow Christians. He says, if your brother sins against you, Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. The goal is a restoration to relationship. So we talk to one another when we have been sinned against. But Paul also instructs the church in Galatia. He says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, so not just a sin against me, but any sin is known, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So this is a primary way that God disciplines us. Through mature Christian friends, kids, through our parents, through Christians who know us well and love us enough to call us out. Listen, to fail to confront sin in the lives of fellow Christians is a failure to love them. It's giving them up to their sin. If we know it's bad for them, it's going to wreak havoc on their life. To just let them sin is to not love them. Now, let's change the tables because you might actually be the person with sin that needs to be confronted, right? I have had Christian brothers who have confronted me for sin. This has happened many times. I have lots of sin that needs to be dealt with. My fleshly response in those scenarios is to want to save face, uh, to cover up, to make excuses, to make myself look good. It's a lot like David. But in time, the Spirit has taught me to stop and say, wait, maybe they're right. Maybe they're not judging me. This may be a mercy of God confronting my sin and disciplining me. And often, often, that's exactly what's happening. So that's the first way. That's one of the easiest ways that God disciplines us through Christian family and friends confronting us. But second, God disciplines us through the prophetic ministry of the church. So Nathan is not just some guy. He's a prophet of God, speaking a truth that he received from God. And in the life of this church, you will regularly hear prophetic messages from this pulpit, also in Sunday school classes and Bible studies. And when I say prophetic, I don't mean they've received some word from the Lord. They've received this word from the Lord. And as they are preaching it and teaching it to you, the word then cuts you like a scalpel. So through ordinary ministry, you will sometimes find your sin exposed. I pray that your sins are exposed, that your sin will be called out, that your shame and guilt will become apparent to you, and you realize that you are seeking satisfaction in the things of the world. Now, maybe I don't call you out by name, and I I probably don't have any idea what your secret sins are, but God does it through the ministry of the Word. This is yet another reason that we need the church that we need weekly worship, that we need pastors and elders and Bible study teachers. And to be quite frank, I much prefer God to confront my sin through a sermon than through a one-on-one confrontation with a Christian friend or family member, right? That is a very merciful means of grace when I hear a sermon that lays me bare, right? So it allows me and God to handle it in private. But that is one way that God disciplines us for our sin, through the ordinary prophetic ministry of the church. But third, God disciplines us through ordinary means of grace, like meditating on the Scripture, like prayer, like the sacraments, or witnessing the lives of sanctified Christians. Sometimes this is all it takes. We read the Bible, and the Holy Spirit confronts us. We pray, and in the light of God's holiness, our sin is laid bare. We witness someone else's baptism. This sign of cleansing from sin, and we recognize our own uncleanness. We take communion, and we feel the pressing of the Holy Spirit calling us to live in a way that is reflective of what Christ has done, right? Or we see Christians we admire. We know their stories intimately. Maybe someone we know or a Christian biography we read, and we see an example that we are far uh, falling far short of. Through all these means, God so mercifully exposes our sin, disciplines us, and calls us to repentance. Fourth, God disciplines us through suffering. More specifically, through suffering that flows from our sin. So I'm not talking about any old suffering. It's not like you stump your toe and you're like, oh, I must, I must have some kind of sin that God's trying to confront now, or I had a car accident now, oh, I must have some kind of sin God's trying to, to point out to me. No, I'm talking about when you sin, and that sin causes you pain, relationally, spiritually, psychologically, emotionally, or otherwise. David's sin caused him great fear, did it not? And eventually, great loss. So when we sin, God often allows our sin to hurt us. Like Chris said, he just kind of lets his finger up a little bit so that we learn to hate our sin that we know it is a lie. It is not going to satisfy us. It is going to hurt us. And through all these different avenues, God disciplines his children. But his goal is not retribution. We're going to talk more about that next week. It's reconciliation and restoration. God shows us the danger of our sin and invites us back to himself. Herein, there's a good takeaway for us with parents uh, who are parents who have kids at home or if maybe you're a school teacher and you engage in discipline at school, the goal in the discipline of our children is not retribution, right? We're not trying to make them pay for the thing they've done. Now, any discipline that we exercise as parents is not retributive. It's intended to train them, Hebrew says, to warn them of the dangers of sin, to remind them that sin hurts them, and to call them back to the God who loves them and the parents who love them. So as we close, consider this. Do you have a sense that God has ever disciplined you for your sin? If uh, you are a Christ follower, you can expect that when you sin, God will use one or more of these four means to discipline you. Granted, it may not be as drastic as David's discipline, but God will do it. God is faithful to discipline his children. So let me give you two practical uh, takeaways. First, if you have never seen evidence of God's discipline in your life, Ask God to do it. Hebrews 12 told us that if God doesn't discipline us, it's because we're not his children. So if you have never seen God confront and expose your sin, if he's never done this sanctifying work in your life, ask him to do it. Ask him to adopt you into his family, to love you enough to exert his lordship over your life and to do the work of discipline in your life. Second takeaway Put yourself in a position to experience discipline by participating daily in the means of grace. So when David was scheming and trying to figure out how to seduce Bathsheba, when he's trying to figure out how to save face and how he's going to dispose of Uriah and make himself out to be the good guy, I just don't think he was spending much time on those days in prayer. I don't think he was singing the Psalms or worshiping with God's people or or hanging out with Nathan, you know, just his buds. (laughs) So Christian... Don't be a dull-headed, stiff-necked child. Instead, draw near to your Father every day. Read His Word. Pray. Worship weekly. Spend time with godly people. Put yourself in a place that when you sin, God doesn't have to send somebody across town (laughs) to confront your sin. Expose yourself constantly to the Holy God so that you're daily confessing sin, daily repenting, and daily experiencing the sweet mercy of discipline. God is faithful to discipline his children, so expect it. Open yourself up to it. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. Let's pray. God, we ask for your mercy. Don't leave us in our sins but make your faithfulness and your love known to us by disciplining us when we do sin. Lord, let us not harden our hearts against our sin to our own hurt and the hurt of, peop- of the people around us. Holy Spirit, be so <laughs> merciful to us to confront our sins early and often that we might be confessing our sins and repenting and enjoying our relationship with you. And God, if there's anyone here who is not your child, give them the courage to ask you to adopt them into your family. And we pray, oh God, that you would do it. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.